are new here, we are in our summer sermon series through the book of James called Faith in Motion. Now, if you were here last week or two weeks ago, uh, you know that James is the the little half-brother of Jesus, who, by the way, did not believe in Jesus, did not follow Jesus all of his life until after the resurrection. And so the, the fascinating thing about James is he goes from someone who is familiar, from someone who's familiar with Jesus, right? He grew up in the same house as him, to someone who's absolutely sold out for Jesus. And we hope that this summer, this series in James will allow some of us to take that step. Because the reality is I think there are a lot of people in the American church at large today who are familiar with Jesus, but don't really know Jesus. They're not really sold out to Jesus, right? They haven't really reoriented their entire lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what James is encouraging us in this letter. His thing is like, look, he wants you to know that following Jesus is active, right? So the Christian faith is not a passive faith. So if you grew up in one of these churches where the idea was, hey, this is just like an intellectual ascent thing. You just need to believe in God. You need to believe that Jesus came to this earth, that he died and he rose again. And it's just kind of an intellectual thing, like you believe in George Washington was the first president of the United States, but it has no effect on your life. You need to understand, James is saying, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and that is not the relationship that God wants to have with you. It's so much more than that. Authentic faith should just produce this, this sort of, different lifestyle that should distinguish us from the rest of the world, right? And so he's gonna give us really practical things. The last couple of weeks, he's talked to us about how we are to walk through trials. Do you know that even the way we deal with pain, suffering, and trials as followers of Jesus is different? It ought to look different than the way that the world deals with those things, right? And so right in chapter one, right out of the gates, James is saying, hey guys, count trials, count suffering as joy, joy, right? Knowing that God is doing something in you to mold you and shape you more into the image of Jesus, right? And then last week, we saw that part of our Christian faith is caring for the marginalized in our community, right? Pastor uh, Ranjit brought the, the message last week, and man, he, did, he does a great job always. Guy always looks like he just stepped out of GQ. Every time he preaches here, I just start rethinking my wardrobe. I get like a complex. I'm like, man, I, I need to get some better looking clothes. The guy always looks really, really sharp. And he, uh, he did a great job of wrapping up James chapter one for us. And he wrapped it up with this statement from James. This will be on the screens for you. This is how we finished last week. This is how we're gonna start this week. This is what James says to wrap up chapter one. He says this, religion, and when James uses the word religion, he's, he's, he's meaning spirituality, this idea of following Jesus, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, listen, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To care for the marginalized in society, James says, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world, meaning that as followers of Jesus, listen guys, we ought to be living a countercultural lifestyle. And what that means practically is that following Jesus means that a lot of times we're gonna be cutting against the grain in our culture. We're, we're gonna be swimming upstream in our culture. We're not always gonna be the cool kids. We're not gonna be applauded and accepted for our belief system and our ethics and how we view the world and how we live our lives, right? If you remember back to John 15 through 17, Jesus taught, man, we are, we are to be in the world. We are not to be of the world. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? To be, to be in the world, but not to be of the world. Meaning that we're not supposed to isolate ourselves, right? We're not supposed to create little Christian bubbles where we never interact with the world. No, we're supposed to be salt and light, so we engage the world around us, but we don't allow the world to become sort of our, our, um, our standard for the way that we live, right? So we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Well, what does that look like, James? 
Well, he's told us several things the last couple of weeks. Today, he's gonna tell us one component of being in the world, not of the world, of really following Jesus, this really upside down uh, kingdom of Jesus is to, listen, to eradicate partiality or favoritism from our lives. Now, I'm gonna use those words interchangeably this morning, just so you know, partiality and favoritism. And James is gonna spend a huge chunk of his letter in chapter two talking about how this should not be present in our lives as followers of Jesus or in our fellowship as we gather as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. It just cannot be a part of who we are or how we live our lives. Now, I, I hate to bring this up, especially on Father's Day, I don't wanna traumatize anybody, but do you guys remember middle school? I, I get stressed just thinking about it, right? It's like maybe the, the worst three years of my entire life. It's just, it was terrible, right? And, and as I talked to a lot of people, you guys, many of you had the same experience. You're like, man, I, middle school, some of you maybe are in middle school. It's, it's just, it can be really hard. It's this awkward season of life where you're just trying to figure out who you are and there's all this social pressure and kids can be, ah, oh, just so brutally mean. And, and for me, it was especially tough because my family was living overseas, at the time, and so I always tell people, my childhood was, was kinda like, because I lived in Costa Rica and Chile, was kinda like the Hispanic Mayberry. If you ever watched the old show, Andy Griffith, right? Which is really calm, really peaceful, this awesome childhood, the school that I went to, all the kids wore uniforms, right? So nobody knew who was rich or who was poor, right? And so we come back and my parents kinda dumped me in this public middle school right outside of Birmingham, and I felt like I just got dropped in the middle of a federal prison, right? Just like, like what in the world is going on? Like fights in the lunchroom and gangs and like drugs all over the place. And they're like, what in the world is going on? But I discovered really, really quickly that to be a part of the cool kids, you had to have the right clothes. All right, now, you guys, if you're younger than like 35, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But back in the early 90s, the cool thing you had to have on was duckhead shorts. Anybody remember duckhead? Anybody, like four of you, right? Duckhead, duckhead shorts, man. Though, if you didn't have duckheads, you just forget about it. You're, you're a nerd, you can't hang out with the cool guys. And then on top of that, if you wanted to be really, really, really cool, you had to have the newest Nike Air Jordans, right? If you had the, the new Air Jordans on, you were cool. The problem was they were like 150 bucks, even back then. And I came from you know, a poor family, just a minister. There was no chance I was ever getting any Air Jordans, right? So I discovered really, really quickly to be accepted in that culture, to be loved in that culture, I was gonna be judged primarily on what I wore, right? So people were gonna be prejudiced against me if I didn't have the right clothes on. So they'd kind of look at what brand your shoes were, your shorts, like, pfft. Wrangler, what you, you shop at Walmart, bro? You can't, you can't sit, you can't sit at this table. It was, it was terrible. It was, it was awesome. You really, you, you really had to be accepted based on things that were really, really superficial. Now, listen. As we get older, I think our favoritism, uh, our partiality becomes more subtle. But the truth of the matter is, man, we all tend to still drift towards favoritism, partiality, and prejudice. Right? We, we tend to want to impress people that can benefit us either materially or socially. And yet the problem with that is the gospel of Jesus breaks down the very sort of racial and social and economic walls that our culture tries to build up. And James is gonna tell us this morning that authentic faith in Jesus is really not even uh, acceptable. It's not even compatible with impartiality. Right? Now this is not something that we think of as a serious sin. Most of us, if we think of favoritism and partiality, 
a lot of us wouldn't even think of it as a sin. And if we do, we're kind of like, ah, that's a secondary sin, right? It's not really a big deal. And James is gonna challenge that assumption. He's gonna say, actually, guys, this is a very, very big deal. So let's jump right in. James chapter two, starting in verse one. This is James, little brother of Jesus, writing this. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and so what we're gonna see this morning is that James breaks up this part of his letter into three neat sections, right? So he's gonna give us a command first. Hey, this is what you guys need to do. He's gonna give us uh, the why behind the command. So he's gonna say this is, this is the reason why this is important. And then he's gonna give us the result of applying that command in our lives, right? So that's, that's kind of my outline this morning. That's kind of what James gives us. And he's gonna start with the command. Show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, and this is our first truth, this is kind of the big idea of the whole message. I'm gonna put it on the screens for you. This is what James is saying. Favoritism and faith are incompatible. Favoritism or partiality and faith in Jesus are incompatible, right? They, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. It's like Duke and Carolina fans right before the ACC championship game, right? It's like, it's like those of us who know and recognize that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player ever and those lost souls that think that LeBron James is the best basketball player. Just oil and water, right? Don't, don't mix. The two things don't mix at all. Favoritism and faith in Jesus, James is saying, are incompatible. Now, the fascinating, thing here is the, the fascinating thing is the word that James uses for partiality here in the Greek literally means to receive the face of someone. Now, think about that definition. To receive the face of someone, meaning to judge someone based on their externals or their appearance, right? To, to, to look at somebody and just, and listen, guys, we all do this subconsciously probably at least a dozen times a day. We see somebody, we look at somebody, and we don't even have to intentionally do it. We subconsciously do it. We make snap judgments about their character, what they're like, what their value is, and what their worth is as human beings. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, this may be new to you, but one of the, I think one of the most beautiful and unique things about our faith is this doctrine of uh, imago Dei, right? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, very first uh, chapter in the, the Bible, it says that mankind is created in the imago Dei, in the Im image of God himself. And, and, and that, that, that doctrine is so deep and so meaningful because it, mean, it means that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what skin color you have, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, we are all image bearers of the creator God with intrinsic value and worth. Right? Furthermore, the gospel of Jesus, as I've already said, really just kind of radically breaks down the walls of race and class that our culture naturally erects. Because the reality is, man, if you come to Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're good looking, it doesn't matter if you got hit with the ugly stick, it doesn't matter if you're educated, uneducated, blue collar, white collar, black, brown, white, rich, poor. Paul says in Romans 10, Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he's saying is we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Now this is a distinct, by the way, just in case you didn't know this, this is a distinctly Christian idea. And so every other worldview out there that espouses some sort of human equality, they are borrowing from the Christian worldview. 
But the truth of the matter is, even as followers of Jesus, we are broken people and we still tend to struggle with this. In fact, there's a story, a legendary story that says that Gandhi, as a young man, um, was very fascinated with Christianity. And in fact, he, he studied the gospels for a while as a, as a young guy. He was really attracted to Jesus and his teachings. He saw it as a beautiful sort of alternative to the prejudice and partiality and favoritism in the Hindu religion. And so um, he was just so drawn to Jesus after studying him that he decided that one day he was gonna go to church. It's like, man, I, got, I just gotta see this stuff lived out. And so he finds a church in Calcutta, India, and he goes, and as soon as he arrives at the church, the ushers stop him at the door and say, I'm sorry, you can't worship here. You need to go worship with your own people. And from that day forward, Gandhi never looked back and never considered Christianity, and that's when he famously said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. Now, if you're sitting here right now hearing this message and you're thinking, man, my racist uncle needs to hear this or my crazy neighbor needs to hear this or my roommate that's got a lot of issues needs to hear let me just let me just tell you to, to hit pause on that thought and I wanna say to you with all love and compassion in my heart, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. And I need, I need to hear this, right? Because I, you need to understand this. Partiality is so, it's so subtle. It's so sinister, it's so insidious that, it, that it's a sin that most of us are entangled in and we don't even realize it. Which of course is the most dangerous kind of sin to have in our lives because it's kind of like having a cancer in your body and not knowing that it's there so that you can treat it or remove it, right? It just spreads and grows and you don't know until it's too late. And James is saying, this is that serious. You guys need to take this seriously as followers of Jesus. One stark reminder as I was studying this week, I just the Lord brought this story to my mind. It's just a reminder to me that this, I'm not above this, right? That this is a sin, this is a seed that's buried in my heart. I, I remember Cheryl and I got married and we moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina and that's where I was gonna start seminary. And so it was, it was my first day on campus and it was orientation day. And I was, I was, so, I was so dumb, I, was, I just, I'm, so, I was so dumb at the time, it's embarrassing to even tell a story, but th this happened and um, so I was, at the time, I kind of fancied myself an athlete, right? And I was really in shape, and I worked out, and I ran a lot, and all this kind of thing. I was into fitness. And, um, and I met this guy my first day on campus, and he was the opposite of everything that I am, right? He's this guy who's five foot nothing, and kind of kind of heavy set, and bald with glasses. And so I meet him, and we're just kind of talking. We're just kind of exchanging pleasantries. Where are you from? What, you know, what's your family like? And and at the end of our conversation, the guy goes in and gives me a big bro hug, right? He just goes in and wraps his arm around me and squeezes me tight. And I'm, you know, I'm not quite touchy-filly, right? So I was a little uncomfortable in the moment. And, uh, and, and so I walk away and I remember, I'm so ashamed, I walked away and the first thought I had in my mind is, I could never be friends with somebody like that. I could never be friends with somebody like that. And once you know it, that over the course of the next two and a half years, that guy became my best friend at seminary. My very, he became my very best friend. He's, he's still one of the most cherished guys in my life. He's just a, he was a great, godly, 
caring guy. And so we became pals, man. We would go to class together. We'd come back to my apartment. We'd watch Godfather reruns all the time together. It was glorious. And he came, he came out of a Presbyterian background. So he was all about like baptizing babies. And I came out of a Baptist background. So I was all about not doing that. And we would have all kinds, all kinds of heated discussions. And after we'd scream at each other, he would get up and give me a big bear hug, right? I just couldn't stay mad at it. He's always giving me a hug, right? I couldn't, I couldn't stay mad at the guy. But what that did was it exposed in me the seed of partiality and favoritism that I have towards other people. I make these kind of snap judgments about people without even realizing it half the time. And what James is saying is no, faith and favoritism are incompatible. So brothers and sisters, root this junk out of your hearts. It's anti-gospel. And he's actually gonna go on and call it evil. It's sinful. Now, let me ask you something. If, you, if we were... Here this morning, as you were coming in, you sat down, there were two open seats beside you. Just imagine that LeBron James and Taylor Swift walk in and sit right beside you, all right? Now, if you're, if you're older than 60, let's say it's Magic Johnson and Dolly Parton, right? If you, don't, if, you don't know, if you don't know who LeBron and T. Swift are, let's just say Magic Johnson, Dolly Parton. They walk in, they sit right next to you, right? So you got one famous person on this side, you got one famous person on this side. Let me just ask you something. Would you be distracted right now in the sermon? Be honest, you're in church. Would you be distracted? I would. <laughs> I would be thinking, man, how can I get a selfie without him noticing that I'm taking this, this picture? I don't wanna look like a fanboy, but I want this on my Insta really, really soon, right? My fans are gonna think this, this is crazy. My followers are gonna think this is crazy. This is awesome. I would be so distracted. Now, why is that? Why would every one of us be distracted if we had two famous people sitting right next to us? It's because we all have the seeds of partiality and favoritism in our hearts. Now, listen, what's, what's the antidote to partiality since it's so subtle? And half the time, we don't even realize that this is a, a sin pattern in our lives. Well, James tells us right in verse one. Look at verse one again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold uh, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the Lord of glory. See, if you have LeBron and T. Swift sitting beside you, and listen, just imagine all of a sudden, the, the sky splits open, the roof splits open, and all of a sudden, Jesus, in all his majesty, in all his glory, descend right here. Just, his glory fills the room, right? He's got a throng of angels who are singing worship to him. And man, you're almost blind. You can't even look at him directly. And this, just this incredible scene, Jesus is right here in our midst. Let me ask you, in that moment, are you still distracted by LeBron and T-Swift? No, Why? Because in that moment, you would be so captivated by the glory of Jesus that nothing else would matter in your life. And James is saying, listen, the antidote to partiality is to get captivated with the glory of Jesus. Right? To be so enraptured, to be so in love with him that it doesn't matter what anybody else does for a living. And it doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how popular they are. Because your sole focus in life is loving Jesus and following him. James gives us this really incredible example of how this uh, favoritism, the sin of partiality, could look like in a church in verse two. Look what he says. For if a man wearing a gold ring, that was a, a status symbol in the Jewish culture, right? If you had a gold ring on, you were signaling to the world around you that you were wealthy, that people should show you honor, they should show you respect because you have money. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, like your, well, now, like a gathering of the saints, 
And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet on the floor, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So here, here's the picture. If we were to maybe modernize this just a little bit, just imagine we're, we're here on a Sunday morning. We pull up in the parking lot. You pull up in the parking lot, and this dude drives up in just like this brand new Ferrari or Maserati, or maybe, maybe it's the next level. Maybe he comes in a private chopper. It just lands right in the middle of the yard or out there, right? Just right there in the middle of the yard. And he gets out, and he's got the latest designer clothes on and like a $10,000 Armani gold watch on and bodyguards, and all of a sudden the paparazzi pulls up, and they're taking pictures of him, right? And our ushers and some of our staff rush out there, and we greet him, right? And we're like, hey, man, can we get a selfie with you? And, and they were like, hey, let us, let us take you in. We got, a, we got a private VIP room off to the side where you can watch the entire service and not intermingle with all the peasants out there, man. It's gonna be great. Our lead pastor's gonna come and introduce himself and just kind of make sure that you're comfortable, you have all that you need. And just imagine right around the same time, quietly with no fanfare, a really poor dude walks in off the street, dirty, smelly, poor, matted hair, maybe some flies buzzing around, right? And everybody just kind of ignores him. And he doesn't know where to sit, and he feels uncomfortable, and he feels isolated. And so he finally approaches an usher and says, hey, is there anywhere that I can sit? And just imagine if the usher said, now listen, we're, we're kind of got a full house this morning, and, and, and you really kind of stink, so why, why don't you go stand in the corner away from everybody? In fact, maybe, maybe just sit down over there. We don't want you sitting in our chairs. You're kind of dirty. Certainly don't sit close to anybody, because that might make them gag, and they'd never want to come back to our church. So why don't you just, why don't you just stand over there? You can be here, but just stand over there. Let me ask you something. Does that scenario honor or dishonor God? That's right, dishonors God. And James says, when you do this, guys, listen, even in your mind, he says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. So he's not saying this is like, this is like a minor thing. It's not a big deal. He's saying, guys, this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal to God. This is not only sinful, this is actually evil. He's saying, guys, listen, you guys have adopted the world's value system instead of the value system of the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Now, this is just one example of how favoritism or partiality could play out as people kind of pander towards the rich. But listen, this can apply to skin color. This could apply to looks. This could apply to age. How about something more, more recent? If you're either like a, you were a, a pro-masker or an anti-masker, or you're for vaccines or against vaccines, whatever position you took over the course of the last year, year and a half, did you ever look at somebody on the other side of the aisle with a little bit of disdain in your heart? You're walking through the store and they're doing the opposite of what you're doing and you just kind of think in your mind, oh, what a dog, what a moron, you know? Ah, oh, vaccine, own it. Have you ever had any of those thoughts about secondary issues over the course of the last year? Did you ever judge anybody over something really stupid and goofy like that over the course of the last year? James says it's evil. It's not meaningless. It's not something that we just ought to sweep under the rug. That is a problem in your heart. You need to pluck that thing out and kill it. 
Because that is against the gospel. It's anti-gospel. It's evil. It's incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. So the question I had as I was reading this is why? Why does it seem to be so important to God? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire James to write quite a huge chunk about this in his only letter in the scriptures? Why is this so important? Well, James tells us exactly why it's important, starting in verse five. Listen to this. James writes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James gives us two reasons why favoritism should not exist among the people of Jesus. And here's the first one. It's an important one. I'm gonna put it on the screens for you. And that is this. If you're a Christian, you need to understand you serve an impartial God. You serve an impartial God. James says, has God not chosen the poor of this world? to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now listen, if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you're, you're new to the Christian faith, you need to understand that both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike are absolutely chock full with passages that describe God's love and care for the poor and the downtrodden, right? God's people, Old Testament, New, New Testament, God's people are constantly commanded over and over again to care for the least of these in our society, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our churches. In fact, Jesus takes this so seriously, in fact, that in Matthew 25, uh, he, he kind of paints this picture of what the final judgment is gonna be like on that last day. So I just wanna, wanna share with you part of this teaching from Jesus in Matthew 25. This is what he says. This will be on the screens for you. Jesus says, then he, he's talking about himself, then he, Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now here's where it gets really interesting. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or, or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? We never saw you in distress. We never, we never saw you hungry or thirsty. And then he will answer them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, dear friend, the kingdom of Jesus is nothing like the kingdom of this world. In this world, it's the rich, it's the famous, it's the good-looking, it's the cool kid, it's the glamorous people that get celebrated and imitated in our culture. But conversely, in the kingdom of Jesus, it's the poor in spirit who are honored. Right, the poor in spirit, but the people that are rich in faith, they are the ones who are gonna receive honor in the kingdom to come, right? So it's, it's gonna be the, the single mom, who's working two jobs and bringing her kids to church by herself on Sunday morning, right? It's the unsung dad who's working a hard blue collar job and he comes home exhausted and yet he serves his wife. 
And he gets down on the floor and wrestles with his kids and teaches them about Jesus, right? It's the broke high school student or college student who saves the very little money that they have, maybe to go on a summer mission trip to share the hope of Jesus with people who don't have that hope. Those are the people that are gonna be honored in the coming kingdom of Jesus. Not the star rich basketball player or the glamorous country uh, singer who's a star or the billionaire CEO who expects everybody to wait on them hand and foot. It is the least of these who are gonna inherit the kingdom of Jesus. See, listen, it has always largely been people on the margins of, of society who have been most attracted to Jesus. Always. From the very beginning. I want you to listen to this uh, ancient Greek philosopher named Celsus who uh, was anti-Christian and so he, he kind of mockingly is writing about the Christians in 180 AD. So this is like 1800 years ago, right? This is a long time ago. Listen, listen to how he describes us, Christians. He says, let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible. For all that kind of thing, we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, that's what he's calling us. If any man is ignorant, if any is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly. Sounds like a pleasant man, doesn't he? We see them, he's talking about Christians, we see them in their houses, wool dressers, cobblers, fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. Christians are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests. Or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp? Or worms convening in the mud? Welcome to the frog symposium and the worm convention, guys. We've always been the outcast, the, on the, the people on the margins of society. From the very beginning, this movement is filled with the poor and the rejects and the down and out, right? Even today, the greatest movements of God that are happening right now in 2021 are mostly happening in impoverished areas where Christians are persecuted and people are hostile towards the gospel. So you wanna know the place where the gospel is really taking root all over the world? You gotta look at sub-Saharan Africa. You gotta look at China, right, where the communist regime just relentlessly persecutes the church there. Places like the Middle East. By the way, did you know that Iran has the fastest growing underground church in the world right now? Right, crazy, right? The, mo the most impoverished, the most downcast people in the world are the people that tend to be drawn to Jesus. It's not the cool kids, right? It's not the famous star athletes or the, the coolest influencers on social media. James even says, hey, listen, isn't, the, isn't it the rich, the famous people, the cool kids of this world who oppress you, drag you into court, blaspheme the name of Jesus, right? It, it seems like the scenario that's happening right here is that these believers were being targeted and abused by wealthy unbelievers in their cities, and yet these Christians were still trying to cozy up to these uh, rich people who were persecuting them. And don't we still see that happening today, guys? So many churches... So many Christians, and it's so sad, man. They are trying so hard to be loved and accepted by the world, right? And in this sad attempt to kind of become part of the cool kids of this world, they begin to capitulate on their beliefs and on what Scripture teaches so they'll be loved. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of, of Stockholm Syndrome, right? So if you've ever had the, the privilege of, of counseling somebody, um, that has this, man, it's one of the saddest conditions you can, you can see in somebody, right? Someone who's abused, 
and yet they return to their abuser for love and affirmation and acceptance. So there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of denominations, there are a lot of Christians today, and, and, and the thought process, I think, is something like this, man. The culture, the culture hates us because we're Christians, and so let's just let's pretend like this part of the Bible isn't there, and then maybe they'll love us. Then maybe they'll accept us. It's like, do you love me now? Still don't love me. Okay, well, let's, let's water down this part of the Bible. Let's take this part of the Bible out. Do you love me now, world? Do you accept me now, world? No, you still don't love me. All right, so let me take this part out. I'm gonna take this part out as well. Now do you love me? No, no, I don't. So it's this, this really sick cycle. And before long, if you're not careful, man, you wake up one day and you're not even following the Jesus of the Bible. You're following some Jesus that's really just a figment of your imagination that looks, sounds, and talks just like the culture around you. And James is saying this ought not be a part of the people of God. Partiality, favoritism towards the world, towards the rich and famous. And he's saying, listen, because you serve an impartial God, number one, and number two, it doesn't work. The world's not gonna love you if you love Jesus. You're never gonna be a part of the cool kids club if you love and you follow Jesus and you reorient your life around him and his gospel. That's not the way it works, right? Jesus himself said, in this trouble, you're, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. They hated me, they're gonna hate you. That's what Jesus said. They persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. But take heart because I've overcome the world. And so James gives us this command. Hey guys, this, if you love Jesus, this just can't be a part of your life. Favoritism, partiality, prejudice. It can't be present in your churches. It's incompatible with the gospel and the grace of Jesus. And then he gives us the why behind it, right? Because your God is impartial. This is his character. You gotta be like him. And then he's gonna close by giving us the application, right, are the results when we begin to live this way. Look at verse eight with me. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. He says, if you're doing that, you're loving your neighbor as yourself, good job. But, verse nine, if you show partiality, you are committing what? You are committing sin. In other words, guys, this is, this is a big deal. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The law he's referring to, to here is God's law in the Old Testament. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now James is simply saying here, that we all have this tendency inside of us to justify our own sin by sort of thinking, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I know I got some junk in my life that I really probably need to deal with, but I, I'm not a big sinner, right? So, so maybe I'm prejudiced. Maybe I show favoritism, partiality. Maybe I struggle with pride or greed or envy or gossip or one of these little, small, insignificant sins, but I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never done something really big, and so I'm gonna be all right with God because I've never committed any of these big sins. And James is saying, wrong, wrong, wrong. He's saying if you violated any of God's law, you are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner at that point in need of a redeemer, right? If you wanna know, if you wanna test yourself, let's just walk through the 10 commandments, right? We don't even have to get to the rest of the Bible. 10 commandments, we'll just start with two or three. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever put anything else in your life before God? 
By the, by the way, the answer is yes for all of you. So we're, we're one deep, we're all guilty already, all right? But we'll keep going just for the fun of it. You shall honor your father and your mother. How'd you do with that as a kid, as a teenager? You ever dishonor your mom and dad? You ever disobey them? Guilty. How about this one? You shall not steal. Ever take anything that wasn't yours? Three strikes and you're out. You shall not bear false witness. Have you ever lied? Do we need to even keep going? We're all guilty. And that's, that, that's James's point here. You are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner. You are guilty of breaking the law of a perfect, holy, righteous, just God. And just because you haven't murdered somebody, if you have favoritism, prejudice, partiality in your heart, you are still just as guilty. And that, friend, is why we need the gospel. That, friend, is why every single one of us, every person on this planet, needs a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one who has come into this world and he lived a perfect, sinless, flawless life on our behalf. And he paid the penalty for all of the ways we've broken God's law and he rose again and he offers us forgiveness and freedom in the name of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so in verse 12, James is gonna give us kind of the application point here. So look at verse 12 with me. James says, so speak and so act. See, so James is saying, listen, uh, following Jesus is not just lip service. Words are cheap, right? He's saying, so speak and so act. This should be reflected in the way that you live your life. It's not simple words, it's your lifestyle. The two together are what indicate that you have a saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus. So speak and so act as those who are, are to be judged under the law of liberty or the law of grace. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is saying, dear friend, if you know Jesus because what Jesus has done for you, you are going to be judged under the law of liberty or grace. Mercy is going to triumph over judgment for the follower of Jesus. Now, practically speaking, here's what that means. If you're in Jesus, if you love him, I know none of us are walking out this faith journey perfectly. We're all flawed. We all stumble. We all fall. But at the end of the day, if deep down, man, you love Jesus, and you're, you're just doing your best to love him and follow him and you have a relationship with him, what this means, what James is saying here is that one day, on that final day, when you stand before a perfect and holy God, on that final day, what you're gonna find is the mercy that Jesus has purchased for you on the cross through the empty tomb instead of the judgment that you deserve for yourself. That's the beauty, beauty of what he's saying here. Christians have received great mercy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore our lives should be a display of the mercy that we've received to the world around us. And so here's the final truth that'll be on the screens for you as well. God's mercy in us, believer, should birth acts of mercy from us. What James is saying is, listen guys, there's now no room for partiality or favoritism or prejudice, man. We don't tell the poor guy to stand in the back or to sit on the floor. We welcome him as a co-heir in the kingdom of God. We don't show partiality against people who have a different skin color than we do or a different social status than we do because the ground is level at the foot of Jesus Christ. We don't favor the rich and powerful over the poor and weak. We are people of mercy who have been redeemed 
by the merciful king. And a life, anything less than a life of mercy from us would indicate maybe that we've never met this merciful king. Maybe that we've never actually been transformed via a relationship, a powerful, life-changing relationship with the God of this universe. I like the way uh, uh, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, puts it. We'll close with this. This is what Keller says. A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anybody else. That is the language of a moralist heart, somebody who's religious but doesn't know Jesus, hasn't been transformed by his mercy. Conversely, someone who thinks like this, I am only where I am by the sheer unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. This is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. So let me just ask you as we close, first of all, do you, do you know this merciful king that James is describing here? Because I'm telling you right now, living this kind of authentic Christian life, this kind of countercultural life is absolutely impossible if you've never been redeemed and changed by the merciful king. And so if you would have to admit, if you would have to be honest, whether you're watching online or whether you're watching in the room, if you would have to just be honest and confess, like, Chris, man, I know some stuff about God and I know some facts about Jesus. Maybe I got some Bible verses memorized, man, but I don't think I've ever actually met this merciful king. Like my heart has never been absolutely transformed. If that's you, I just wanna encourage you, we're gonna pray in just a minute before we sing that at some point during that prayer, you just cry out to God. God hears you, the words don't really matter, but just cry out and say, God, I, I, know, that I'm a, I know that I'm a sinner. And, and I know that I need to be redeemed by you. I know I've got all these seeds of, uh, of favoritism and partiality and prejudice in my heart. God, I know you're the only one that can take that junk out of my heart and my life. So God, the best way I know how, I just wanna open up my life to you, Jesus. I wanna give you my life. Would you give me your Holy Spirit? Would you help me to follow you, to love you, to live in your countercultural kingdom all the days of my life? You just pray some prayer like that, and I promise you, God will hear that prayer. He will honor that prayer. And today will be the day that you're born again, and you begin a brand new life-changing walk with him. Now, for those of you who answered yes to that question, like, yes, I already know this merciful king. I've already encountered him. I, I love him. I follow him, and I stumble, and I fall, and I don't do it perfectly, but, man, I, I, I love Jesus. I love him so much, and I want to follow him, and I want my life to be centered around him. The question for you is simply this. What areas of your life do you need to do some digging in to find where you're being partial or showing favoritism or prejudice? Where have you failed in your life at living out the royal law of loving neighbor as self. And I promise you, if you dig deep enough, every single one of us are gonna find spots in our hearts as we uncover those layers that God needs to deal with us in those areas and those places. So what area of your life do you just need to open up to the Holy Spirit of God and say, God, do your work. I know I've got these seeds in my heart that are so displeasing to you. 
You call these things evil. You call these things sin. They don't honor you. They kill me. They injure people around me, God. So would you please, I love you. I know that you're with me. Would you please take these things out of my heart and my life? Guys, listen, this is important stuff. So let's examine our hearts right now. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus right now as we pray, and then we're gonna sing. Let me pray for you. God, we, <clears throat> we come to you. We're grateful for your word, which is inspired by your spirit. And even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it is still active and alive, and it penetrates our hearts and our minds and has the power to change us to conform us, to mold us more into the image of your son, Jesus. And so we ask that right now, that these truths that James has given us, that you would, by the power of your spirit, begin to apply them to our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in a way that would change us, transform us. God, don't let us walk out of here as the same people that walked in here. Would you change us? Would you mold us, God? In areas where we have prejudice or favoritism in our life, would you expose those things? Would you illuminate those places in our minds and our hearts that are not honoring to you? And would you do business with us? Would you meet us right where we are? Maybe right now, even begin to bring things to our minds, God. We're not being honoring to you. We're not exhibiting your mercy to others, God. Would you help us become more like you? Thank you that you are an impartial God that when we were sinners, when we were stuck in our sin, when we were mired in our sin, when we were loving our sin, you were not partial towards us. You opened your arms and you welcomed us in. You plucked us out of the kingdom of darkness, placed, them, placed us into your glorious kingdom of light. We thank you that you are an impartial God. Help us be impartial people as we follow hard after you, God. Help us to be agents of your mercy in a world that desperately needs to see in a real and tangible way that there is a God in heaven who loves them and offers them mercy. Help them see that through us this week. And we ask all these things in the strong, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's sing.